Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 14th of October 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Vanessa Beely and uh, our very own Alex uh, Thompson. And of course, Alex bringing us uh, news from the Netherlands. Well, it's getting serious. The state is, uh, well, the state is on top of us. Uh, well, we're going to start off just with a quick review of something we covered on Friday because there's some news on it, and that is this. Uh, if you remember, we were talking about uh, uh, the fact that the Office for National Statistics had issued guidance for doctors completing medical certificates of cause of death with respect to COVID-19. Well, it, with respect to everything, really, but uh, really this was caused by COVID-19. Uh, and we made the point that it wasn't just the Office for National Statistics uh, logo on this document. It was also Her Majesty's passport office, and we were wondering why. So we uh, sent some questions off to the Office for National Statistics and said, and we asked, first of all, what qualifies the Office for National Statistics to give uh, advice to doctors about how to fill in uh, death certificates? Uh, and we also asked, why is this document published jointly with the passport office? And quick as a flash, uh, they have not responded. So uh, they have been given the opportunity to comment and they didn't want to do that. So there you go. Uh, they have commented in the past. So it's not uh, that they never reply to us. Uh, they have replied in the past, not this one. Uh, and if you remember, we uh, made the point that, of course, Lieutenant Colonel Tobias Elwood uh, from 77 Brigade, also an MP, uh, in the House of Commons was making the point that uh, Britain really needed a national database to track progress uh, on, in terms of vaccinations and issue vaccination certificates and that these would need to be globally recognised, internationally recognised in order to allow travel. Uh, and really what this was uh, coming to was, was, was this. Uh, this is the Commons project, unlocking the full potential of technology and data for the common good. And of course, the Commons project, as, is, uh, as are many of the things uh, that uh, are pushed forward in this type of policy area, uh, funded from the Rockefeller Foundation. And they are particularly interested in three areas, common health, uh, COVID check and common pass. And it was common pass that we're particularly interested in uh, because, of course, this is uh, being pushed by the World Economic Forum uh, as well as the Commons Project. So the Commons Project, together with the World Economic Forum, is working to initiate the Common Pass framework to address the challenges of international travel uh, and any travel, in fact, uh, of uh, for people in this COVID world. Well, you'll all be glad to know uh, that according to the Sunderland Echo here, a new COVID passport to replace quarantine is being trialled in the UK. And here's how it works. Uh, and they say, if successful, the Common Pass app, uh, which is being launched by the World Economic Forum and the Commons Project, will allow international travellers to avoid lovely, le lengthy periods of self-isolation. The app will be tested throughout October on flights between London Heathrow and New York, New York Airport, uh, as well as between Hong Kong and Singapore. Travellers will volunteer to test the app with government officials also on board to monitor the process. Uh, there are plans to roll out testing further afield with more airlines. Uh, and speaking to The Telegraph, the Commons Project's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Bradley Perkins said, without the ability to trust COVID-19 tests and eventually vaccine records across international borders, many countries will feel compelled to retain full travel bans and mandatory quarantines for as long as the pandemic exists. So, uh, Brian, uh, we covered that on Friday before this announcement. I think we had that one spot on, but uh, nonetheless, uh, very interesting that this is being pushed forward so hard by the World Economic Forum. By the way, it looks like, you know, we were talking on, the, on Monday's program about uh, uh, Build Back Better and the fact that Boris uh, is using that catchphrase, Biden is using it in the States. These two, not necessarily from the same political standpoint, but they still want to use the same uh, rhetoric and the same uh, catchphrases. Yeah. Uh, I think that is also coming from the World Economic Forum. Uh, that's the originator and the, uh, the, the global reset project that they have. Yeah, so this is world government policy, which is just being streamed straight into UK. We are witnessing the complete uh, um, breakdown of our established government. And we've said it's a coup. We've said it's a dictatorship, which is in power. Uh, travel restricted with these new passports, Mike. Thank you very much to our viewer who found this uh, job advert for a couple of months ago, but bringing it forward is very relevant. So we've got Chief Executive of United Kingdom Security Vetting. Uh, they're advertising for somebody on a salary of 115,000. 
Um, they want a CEO to offer inspiring and engaging leadership to this world leading organisation. Role is outside of London. It says the main UK security vetting operational centres are in York and Milton Keynes. And uh, the UK SV was launched to establish a single provider of government national security vetting services. Vetting is a key service uh, to government security. It provides assurance of individuals working in sensitive roles. The organisation is going through considerable change. And this was the bit that caught my eye. Vetting, um, uh, there we are. Vetting is a key service to government security. It provides assurance of individuals working in sensitive roles. The organisation is going through a, a period of substantial change. And this bit here, as it's transferred from the Ministry of Defence to the Cabinet Office and into the centre of what it calls the security function. So a couple of days ago, we revealed that the Cabinet Office empire has now grown to a minimum of 7,000 people. Now it's taking over roles from the Ministry of Defence. It's bringing in the security function. Alex, I'm going to keep using the word. This is a dictatorship which has been installed under our very noses. It's certainly taken uh, some speed in the last few years, Brian. Uh, the 7,000 figure is as many as or more than worked for GCHQ when I left in 2009. At that stage, I was pretty sure the Cabinet Office was a, a lot smaller than 7,000. So uh, as for vetting, the MOD used to do it centrally, except for its own people. Uh, its own senior people would be vetted by Foreign Office people. Uh, but the Cabinet Office had none of that mission statement that you read out on the Monday news, which basically uh, admits that it is the, the, the holder of the corporate crown rights and all the reserve powers of the crown that the Prime Minister exercises, and that they uh, work on behalf of the Prime Minister himself and his inner coterie. Uh, that's not what the Cabinet Office was designed for between the wars. When it was revived again after the Second World War, it was restated that its purpose was to coordinate government in a Cabinet setting. It's only supposed to be there so that the Secretaries of State for various departments can liaise smoothly. And all of a sudden, it's the Prime Minister's inner core. Uh, very, very different from as late as 2010. Yes, indeed. Right now, uh, Alex, uh, let's just move on quickly. And uh, well, you've got a little bit of video here from Germany. Uh, just, just briefly introduce this. This gentleman calls himself Red Pill Germany. He's got quite a popular YouTube channel. He's migrated more from talking about relations between the sexes to talking about the manipulation of data. He's an engineer and spends a lot of time in the Far East and has very many interesting things to say in each episode. Here he's going through figures provided by Germany's own Robert Koch Institute, the equivalent of Public Health England or the Centre for Disease Control, in that they are the central government repository of the statistics involved. And at this point in his video, which we're sharing with permission, he said, here are the two graphs that everyone is shown to scare them of curves going up. Now let's look at graphs three and four, which don't usually get a look in. Now let's look at the curve that I have been discussing a lot already, and that is the ratio of positive tests of the overall tests. And you see earlier this year it went up to over 10% and now it is around 1%. And that is still, it, go, it, it went up a little bit from 0.78 to 1.5 or whatever, but it is still around 1%, which is still within the margin of false positives. This is still noise, this is not a real signal. I said that in former videos, but you see it here again. And this third curve that I show you today, this is already a curve that almost nobody knows in Germany. But now the fourth graph that I will show you is something that really almost nobody knows. This is really new. It was recently published and I want to show it to you. Here you see mortality data from this year 2020 in Germany with a calendar week resolution on the x-axis. And uh, you see the um, sinusoidally shaped background signal, you know, in winter there are just little more death than in summer. This is this wavy background and on top of it you have several spikes. And I should say first and foremost that the raw signal is that on the upper level that is around 20,000 a week. And superimposed on that you find these, yeah, these spikes or these um, unusual events. They're not that unusual, but they're deviating from this annual background signal. And you have this uh, blue 
uh, curve and you have this blue shaded area. And uh, the uh, solid blue line is the average mortality by calendar week from the years 2016 to 2019. And the um, light blue shaded area, that is the bandwidth. So that is minimal to maximal for the given calendar week. And the red curve, that is 2020, right? And you see that the annual flu, that is this um, peak around calendar week 10, but it already builds up from the beginning of the year. It actually starts already in the previous year, but um, that is the annual flu season. And you see that this signal is much bigger. It, it is much higher over the background than this little uh, peak that we have in calendar week 13, which is the China bug in Germany. And then also notice that in summer around calendar week 30 or for 2020, it's more like 32 or something, there is a spike in summer. And that is the summer heat wave that I also mentioned in my video where I presented the Euromomo data from other European countries. And that is. And, and Alex, that, that is uh, pretty similar to, to the picture that we get in the UK as well. Yes, Mike, uh, you along with Mr. Redpill Germany were one of the early uh, people talking to the public to say, let's look at Euromomo because they compare the statistics across Europe. And for anyone who doesn't follow this thing very often, the sinusoidal graph he's talking about, he's obviously doing this for a living all the time. That's just a gently undulating S shape on its side. More deaths around New Year and January, February with elderly people not coping with the weather and bugs is every year. Then it goes down and there's a, a secondary peak of course, with the heat wave. And what he's saying is the extra excess deaths over the average from ordinary bog standard flu, not that I'm dismissive of flu, it can be a killer, I know. The common or garden flu, as it were, carried off far more people than normal, set against three weeks later, the massive panic about COVID in spring in Germany. That's yeah. very similar to the rest of Europe. Yes. Uh, okay, well, look, uh, we need to move on. Let's have a look at this. Uh, another article uh, about vitamin D. Thank you very much to the person that sent this through to me. Uh, this is from 2017, but it's absolutely relevant at the moment. Uh, it's entitled The Big Vitamin D Mistake. Uh, it is peer-reviewed and uh, is cited by other articles as well, but let's just have a quick look at what it says. Uh, they're talking about type 1 diabetes in Finland, and they're saying that since 2006, type 1 diabetes in Finland has plateaued and then decreased after the authorities' decision to fortify dietary milk products with vitamin D3. Uh, it says that uh, the role of vitamin D3 in innate and adaptive immunity is critical. We've made this point many times on the program. Uh, and uh, they go on to say uh, that, that what they're effectively doing is calling on the Finnish government, in this case, uh, to, to uh, increase the levels of recommended doses, daily intake on this, and what they're saying is a recommendation of 1,000 IU for children less than one year old, uh, 1,500 IU for breastfed children older than six months, 3,000 IU for children greater than one uh, year of age, and 8,000 IU for young adults and thereafter. And this is basically because they are saying quite clearly, actions are urgently needed to protect the global population from vitamin D deficiency. So this is just uh, another uh, paper uh, once again, making the point about how important vitamin D is for long-term immunity. Uh, and, uh, of course, one of the reasons that uh, some people have suffered badly from this, particularly in, old, you know, in the elderly, is that they have a massive vitamin D deficiency. Uh, and this is absolutely normal, but it needs to be uh, recognized and corrected. Um, now, where does that bring us? Uh, Alex, uh, the uh, Amnesty International here, uh, and uh, they're discussing deaths in the NHS. Yes, some things are too hot for them to handle. Political and religious dissidents is increasingly something that Amnesty International don't get involved with. As we have Vanessa on in the next segment, of course, it's a good time to remember viewer, to remind viewers of the massive controversy there was over Amnesty International's use of uh, sources, reliable or otherwise, regarding deaths in a particular Syrian prison. There was a great big to-do about that, quite rightly. But here, Amnesty International has actually managed to find it within itself to criticise one of its 
well, in, in, a, in a loose moral sense, one of its sponsors, the British government, because clearly in the 1970s, it came out of that right thinking environment that Britain was among the countries exporting goodness to the world. But here they do find it in themselves to criti criticize the government. Uh, the, the PDF was shown on the previous slide, as if expendable is the name, it's easily available on their website. The headline of the press release covering it is UK older people in care homes abandoned to die amid government failures during COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, two senior amnesty people have quotations on the left-hand side of the slide. People can freeze the screen and read. And uh, I put a little more detail on the right. Perhaps we'll just go back to that slide for half a minute. And uh, we'll pick out the lower paragraph there. Most shockingly, on the 17th of March, four days after the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a global pandemic, the government ordered the discharge of 25,000 patients from hospitals into care homes, including those infected or possibly infected with COVID-19. Now, David Scott has zoomed in on the Scottish picture where there have been some attempted prosecutions on the Isle of Skye for this very negligence or worse. Uh, but it seems to be that uh, at UK level, possibly internationally, attention is being focused on this criminality now. Um, yes, and, and of course, uh, this is something that uh, we've been trying to get uh people to pay attention to for quite some time. So it's good to see some of the, the uh, pressure groups starting to do that. Now, what's happening with lockdown in the Netherlands, Alex? Dutchnews.nl is covering uh, Prime Minister Mark Rutte's speech, which I listened to live last night. It was identical to the circuit breaker rhetoric that's circulating in Britain. We need to take people out of circulation. But these messages, of course, they come from above the nation state, but they're tailored by the respective prime ministers and health ministers to the national sensibilities. So instead of being told it's a circuit breaker, the Dutch were called, uh, told by Mr. Rutter repeatedly, we're using a great big hammer to smash the problem is exactly the same policy uh, ban on effective ban on alcohol sales, particularly in the evening. Uh, the Dutch have finally caved in on uh, masks in shops and indoor public spaces, having held out through most of the summer more than their neighbours. Uh, but in the, not in the midst of it all, as uh, the Dutch news article also covers, Mr. Russet is saying, actually, we can't legally make these measures enforceable. So we're keeping them at uh, pretty please, strongly and urgently advised. And uh, we hope that nobody will notice. As usual, the Dutch indicate more openly what the British government's also finding, which is that courts will not uphold the legality of these measures. Um, and uh, well, of course, uh, just as in the UK, the EU suffering and the jobs market as a result of lockdown policies in most countries. Uh, so here is a Eurostat news release. In the second quarter of 2020, a total of 40.9 million persons were absent from work in the EU, an increase of 18.6 million compared to the first quarter of 2020. This increase is almost exclusively due to a sharp increase in temporary layoffs which rose from 2.4 million persons to 19.3 million persons. But the question is, will the temporary layoffs become permanent layoffs? Perhaps we get a clue uh, from, uh, from this gentleman, uh, Andrea Andrea, who's the chairman of the European Central Bank's supervisory board. Uh, and he is uh, basically saying um, that uh, the number of uh, defunct or uh, business loans, the number of business loans that are not going to be repaid is re heading towards 1.4 trillion euros. Uh, he's saying it's still too early to rule out this extreme scenario. Uh, it's absolutely incredible how far this uh, this damage to the to um, to uh, the uh, economies is going. Alex and uh, uh, I don't know how many people in in the Netherlands are actually directly starting to suffer as a result of this. Well, uh, restaurateurs, because they're being told as of last night, um, some acquaintances of mine as well are running restaurants. They're being told you will be closed for four weeks. People are pretty much awake now, I think, in many sectors to the intent to close down and not reopen much of the economy. Uh, but alas, it's not just the um, uh, businesses, it's the churches. And over here in the Netherlands, they have been pretty supine and said, we must, uh, it's God's will, we must obey everything the government throws our way. That has not been challenged yet. Uh, but I had an example also from uh, British and American churches, uh, which you have on the slide as well, which is on the right is a prayer that was by an American nun that was issued in April, which has the uh, startling sentiments about two thirds of the way down it, help us to practice social distancing. This has been doing the rounds recently. So, you know, the, uh, one wing of the Roman Catholic Church in America has been promoting this as, you know, follow God's will and, and, uh, and social distance. But on the left, something that happened last weekend, the organization 318, which is a favored witness in England's and England and Wales's independent uh, inquiry into child sex abuse, ICSA, this organization 318 is big on safeguarding and they've given a lot of testimony to ICSA. Here last Sunday, the Church of England allowed um, this 318 
uh, organization to circulate this and it had to be recited standing up in many, Ang many Anglican parishes and instead of saying naughty bishops we will hold the bishops to account for all the things that have gone on uh, through the years of um, um, uh, abuse in uh, church-run settings no it's all our fault and the bottom line there of what was uh, what parishioners were obliged to re read out last Sunday is we commit not to take offense when challenged about our presence or behavior so that means it, the fault is that basically there are men, there are ordinary parishioners in the church and they shouldn't be doing anything around children or women. And if they're told to get lost, they must not take any offence. And apparently that will solve the problem. Nothing to do with bishops. Supplied behavioural uh, reframing, it's brainwashing basically what's going on there, Alex, because uh, those people having their normal values suppressed and being told what they're thought process should be that is brainwashing uh, and just to end this segment off before we bring Vanessa on here is uh, gov.uk you'll be glad to know everybody that's been uh, working over the last few months uh, if you've been forced to work from home you can now claim tax release, relief from your job expenses now some people have uh, have been uh, uh, getting that through PAYE but if you haven't there's now a, a website and you can see it on screen where you can go and fill in the form and get your two pounds a week or so if you're on higher rate tax, and I think it's £1.20 a week if you're on lower uh, rate tax, and that's supposed to compensate you for the use of your home for businesses. But of course, the point that I've been making for several months now is where does this end? Uh, certainly, there are tax implications uh, to working from home, as you can see, but there are also health and safety implications. And here's the health and safety executive. They've got a page on this uh, for protecting home workers uh, with a COVID-19 update. Uh, and uh, and they have a nice little a nice little video that goes with it, uh, so that you know how to sit at a desk when you're at home, Brian, and you know what you're supposed to do to make your home safe. But of course, the point I've been making here is uh, that if there's a requirement for people to work from home, uh, effectively the home then becomes an extension of the workplace, and we are heading in the direction of your employer then being obliged. Uh, to demand access to your home to make sure that it meets health and safety regulations and suddenly the Englishman's home is not his castle anymore. Yeah and it will start with the employer Mike and then it will become a health and safety official and my mind's taken straight back to the very elderly German lady who talked to uh, talked to us about the rise of the, uh, the Nazi party in Germany and the creeping power given to officials, the uniforms given to officials, until eventually she said almost any of them could come into your home. And she described the true horror of that. And of course, that elderly German lady, uh, what are we talking about, 10 years ago, was desperately trying to warn the UK public, it's happening here. Um, okay, well, um, let's uh, welcome Vanessa Bailey to the programme. Welcome to the programme, Vanessa. Oh, we can't. Uh, are you muted? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, okay, good. Uh, right, now, look, uh, here's what's going on. Uh, the BBC has decided to produce uh, a new programme for Radio 4, uh, which they're calling Mayday. Uh, and, Vanessa, they have decided that uh, you and some others, including Piers Robinson and the... Uh, the Syria Working Group uh, for Propaganda and Media uh, are going to be the, the subject of this uh, to some degree? Um, well, yeah, in theory, it's it's um, looking into the life and times of James uh, Le Maisurier, who, of course, was the um, founder of the White Helmets in 2013, former British military intelligence officer. Uh, and died very mysteriously in November 2019, supposedly jumping from uh, the balcony of his house in Istanbul. Of course, since then, there have been a number of reports highlighting uh, his involvement in the embezzlement of funds that were being paid by the British government and um, various other governments, including um, the Dutch government to Mayday Rescue to be siphoned to the White Helmets inside Syria. Um, and so therefore this, I, I'm really struggling, scratching my head a little bit. I can only assume that the BBC has been tasked with protecting the construct, with protecting um, the reputation of James Le Maisurier, posthumously, and also potentially protecting um, his wife, 
Emma Winberg, who is deeply embedded in some of the organisations that have recently been exposed by the British government um, documents leak, um, to be basically um, aiding the armed groups, including terrorist groups inside Syria with media, PR um, and uh, general whitewashing. Uh, now, just to just to explain to people, this uh, British government document leak that you're talking about is a leak which came out, I think, three, four weeks ago, uh, mm. apparently from the same people that released the uh, Integrity Initiative documents. Uh, now, exactly. we, haven't, we haven't had uh, time to go through those in detail yet. Uh, what are your thoughts on them so far? Well, I mean, they've effectively been confirmed by the British government. Um, a report came out in Middle East Eye. Uh, the only comment from British government officials was that they were horrified that um, a Russian cyber attack had been carried out and the documents had been lifted um, from uh, their website. Um, now, of course, what is extraordinary is they said basically, well, everyone knew we were doing this anyway, so the documents are irrelevant. What's more important is the Russian cyber attack. <laughs> So extraordinarily, the British government is effectively saying, well, yeah, of course we did that. Um, but we're more worried about the Russian threat. So effectively, the, the, the documents themselves have been verified by the British, by the, the UK Foreign Office, um, and they are genuine. Yep, okay. Well, look, uh, let's, let's just briefly uh, put... Uh... Uh, the lovely uh, Chloe on screen. Um, this is the lady who has written to you uh, to give you a list of questions. So let's just run through some of the things that she said. Uh, first of all, one lawyer who we've spoken to tells us that someone who spends time with Syrian ministers and who is publicly calling for humanitarian workers to be bombed uh, may be liable to face charges of aiding, aiding and abetting, inciting or conspiring to commit a crime under international law. This could appear to apply to you. I noticed they use the word could. Mm, and appear. <laughs> yes. Uh, you never yeah. said that, though. Sorry? You never said that. I never said what? The, the, or you never called for bombing of, uh, of anybody. No, look, I mean, speaking seriously here, I mean, first of all, um, I have to say I'm pretty horrified that the BBC, which is, at the end of the day, it's a media outlet, isn't it? It's not an extension of UK state power or intelligence power, is it? Um, I'm astounded that a, that, a, that a media platform is basically issuing legal threats. Um, now, this is an extraordinary precedent. I, I'm not aware of any media platform having done this in the past. I could be wrong, and I certainly, you know, I haven't spent a huge amount of time researching it. Um, but I find it extraordinary and I find it a very precarious situation that we're in now. I think, of course, based on, on the back of the treatment of Julian Assange, um, we know now that there is a concerted attack against dissident journalists. And the, the, the feeling that I have is that the BBC are now empowered to threaten journalists that are challenging establishment narratives, whether it be on Syria uh, Libya, Iraq, on on coronavirus, because of course I'm. She also calls me a, a coronavirus skeptic and conspiracy theorist in her um, list of accusations. Um, going back to uh, have I called for the bombing of the white helmets? I've made the very clear case that the white helmets cannot be considered a humanitarian organization when they are embedded with a designated terrorist organization, i.e. Al-Qaeda and, of course, ISIS and various other armed groups that are effectively working under the umbrella of Al-Qaeda in Syria. Um, they are providing um, av aviatory uh, surveillance for Al-Qaeda via the HALA system, which we've discussed previously. Um, they are involved in the persecution of civilians and ethnic minorities. They have been involved in the execution of civilians and prisoners of war. They do not behave in any way like a humanitarian organization inside Syria. And therefore, um, they themselves are legitimate targets in a war situation 
when the defending armies, the liberating armies, are fighting urban warfare to clear hospitals and schools that are occupied by Al-Qaeda with white helmets in um, association with them, acting as auxiliaries for, for Nusra Front and Al-Qaeda. Um, so therefore, I believe I'm perfectly correct in saying that they make themselves a legitimate target. Have I sat there and called for their bombing? Um, no, and I don't think my calling for their bombing would have any huge effect on, on Russian and Syrian military either. Uh, right. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's look at this because uh, the accusation also is that you're not a real journalist because you haven't contacted the White Helmets, Mayday Rescuer, Jims Lemessurier, when he was alive, or his family to check your facts or get your response to your allegations about to get their response to your allegations about them. But of course, this isn't true either. <laughs> no. Um, I mean, actually, unlike um, Chloe, who, to my knowledge, and I've asked her repeatedly, she's not responding to uh, my request for information. Um, I don't believe she's she's entered Syria. She's certainly not entered what I would call free Syria, the real free Syria, the Syria that has been liberated from the terrorist occupation. Um, her only contact with people from inside Syria, to my knowledge, has been in her documentary speaking to former Free Syrian Army um, militants who, of course, were also responsible for many of the early atrocities inside Syria. Um, and a paper that she wrote in 2014 entitled, or rather she contributed to and was a major driver for, um, produced for King's College, uh, the War Department, entitled The uh, New Jihadism. Now, I've actually been contacting Chloe um, this morning because what's fascinating is as part of the paper, um, they put Aral Sham, a group that the UK and the US have avoided designating as a terrorist group, in with Jabhat al-Nusra, which of course is Al-Qaeda and Islamic State, as effectively a Salafi jihadist political organization. Now, bearing in mind that the BBC uh, Panorama Saving Syria's Children report, which Robert Stewart has forensically exposed as a, a staged event, um, during the making of that event, the BBC producers were embedded with Aral Sham. So they were embedded with a group that Chloe herself has admitted is an extremist, Salafi, jihadist, political organization. I don't actually like the term jihadist, but we assume from, from the paper that she's describing them as effectively a terrorist group. Um, and we also know that the British government, um, from a statement by Alistair Burt, has been in contact with members of Arar Sham as part of the externally managed political process inside Syria. In other words, the creation of a shadow state by the British government. So all of this information is being studiously ignored by Chloe. As I said, I've put questions to her this morning. I'm yet to receive a response to them, but I've asked her how she can ignore the fact that BBC Panorama was embedded with Aral Sham when she herself in 2014 describes them as effectively a terrorist organization, um, and how she has managed to avoid investigating the British government uh, collaboration with Aral Sham that have carried out hideous atrocities and massacres inside Syria against the Syrian people. Uh, well, look, uh, there's uh, there's one of the questions. Uh, during the filming of Panorama's Saving Serious Children, BBC producers were effectively embedded with the Rar al-Sham militants. Could you please let me know if you've ever queried how it is possible for BBC production teams to collaborate with an extremist, Salafi-politically-motivated Salafi armed group without one, being harmed, and two, declaring a clear conflict of interest and potential collaboration with a terrorist group that has committed numerous war crimes and atrocities in Syria? And, uh, well, I, I guess the answer is silence. Uh, so far, yeah, silence. I mean, another interesting thing that came out of conversations with Chloe yesterday um, is one of the people that she's interviewed for the program is an old school or a Sandhurst chum of James Le Missourier. 
now Harry Wynne Williams. Now, when I look into Harry Wynne Williams, I mean, what we need to understand is, is the kind of nest of propagandists that are surrounding James the Missourier, including his wife, Emma Winberg. But Harry Wynne Williams basically was with Bell Pottinger um, from 2006 onwards and heavily involved in, of course, uh, the various sort of um, embedded media and PR operations with to create destabilization in Iraq, which were um, managed by Bell Pottinger. Um, Harry Wynne Williams, uh, as a close school friend, old school friend of James Le Missourier, was then um, part of a company called Acadian. Now, Acadian, according to the leaked British documents, um, worked very closely, hand in glove, with ARC Group Analysis Research and Knowledge, where James Le Missourier and his first wife also worked at the time that the White Helmets were being established. Now, Emma Winberg, his second wife, who was with him um, when he died mysteriously, and of course her testimony has a number of anomalies in it, let's say gaping holes. Um, she was one of the co-founders of Incastrat um, with Paul Tilly, who then went on to create um, into a, a new organization, effectively doing the same thing as Incastrat. But Incastrat, as we know, was paid by the British government, the Conflict Stability and Security Fund, to produce the whitewashing PR for Jaish al-Islam who, of course, were responsible for the massacre of civilians in Duma and the staging alongside the White Helmets of the Duma chemical hoax, which has been proven a hoax by the expert testimony of members of the investigative team. So, uh, you know, I mean, basically what I can figure out from what yeah. Chloe has said, when I pushed her for further information, she told me she didn't want to give away anything about the series. So effectively what I can concur from that is the series is going to be a testimony from those that are actually responsible for the war effort against the Syrian people for the last 10 years. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Vanessa, if I may, has Chloe actually oh. said, can I come and interview you? And she's, um, you know, suggested that she actually comes to sit down and talk with you. No, I mean, she, she contacted me back in June with a very curious uh, approach. I mean, initially, her initial um, research was totally off. Um, I had to correct the accuracy of some of the statements she was making from the beginning. Um, she then approached me on the basis that she wanted to talk to me about my father. She wanted to talk to me about my time in Gaza. Um, you know, and the question arising in, in my head is why on earth do you want to spend the five minutes that I have for the program talking about my father and my time in Gaza when effectively this is about my investigations into the White Helmets and the um, potential of uh, a, a, an independent investigation into this group for committing war crimes as they stand accused of by the Syrian people. Syrian people, of course, who Chloe has not got in touch with or reached out to or spoken to. Yeah. Um, well, Vanessa, um, of course, the BBC doesn't have the best reputation with respect to Syria. So uh, this is a Telegraph article from uh, a few years back, uh, 2012, it looks like. Uh, BBC News uh, used Iraq photo to illustrate Syrian massacre. Well, they have done that on a number of occasions. And of course, uh, this gives me the opportunity once again to remind everybody about uh, BBC Media Action. Uh, here is Juliet Harkin, formerly BBC Media Action. This is a quote that Brian uh, dug up for an article. Uh, we, BBC Media Action, worked in 2004 with individuals within the Syrian ministry who wanted change and tried to get them to be drivers of that. Uh, all media development work has been done in Syria that has been done in Syria has, in my opinion, been predicated upon this idea that there can be change with, with, from within. You have an authoritarian regime, you find who the reformers are within that and you work with them. Now, if anybody wants to find the document that this came from, uh, it is this one. It's called uh, Country uh, Case Study, Syria. Uh, it's from BBC Media Action. Um, and uh, what amused me slightly here, Vanessa, was that the subhead here is support to media where media freedoms and rights are constrained. Uh, but in fact, uh, what's really going on here is that the British, uh, that the BBC through organizations like BBC Media Action, but also other organizations like the Thomson Reuters Foundation 
uh, go into these countries uh, ostensibly to help develop media, but what they're actually doing is running regime change operations. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we talked about it the other day that um, James Longman, another BBC, well, he later became a BBC correspondent, but he was initially embedded in areas occupied by the armed groups very early on in the conflict. In fact, possibly even before um, the early so-called uprisings um, began. Um, he spoke fluent Arabic, as I said, he was embedded with the armed groups, and he was picked up very quickly by the BBC and sort of converted into a BBC correspondent um, alongside, and of course, at that time, he was working alongside people such as Danny abdul Dayem, Rami Jada, all of whom were producing um, fake news for, for the army of media operations that were working towards presenting the picture of Syria that would manufacture consent for another humanitarian war. Um, so we have to take it as read that yet again, I mean, we know that the BBC from John Pilger's film, The War They Don't See, was heavily involved in promoting um, the Khazar's belly for, for the Iraq war. Um, we know that historically the BBC, as they are doing with COVID-19, are there to shore up British government and British intelligence narratives. Um, they do not deviate from establishment narratives. I mean, it's interesting that one of the accusations they put in there is anti-Semitism. Well, of course, I mean, you know, that's bound to be included alongside my the, the usual, I'm paid by Russia, I'm paid by Assad, I'm embedded with Syrian ministers, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I have to say that the list of slurs is incredibly unimaginative. I mean, there's nothing new in there other than the fact that the BBC is effectively threatening me with legal action. I do have to say, and Chloe, my dear, if you're watching, please do take me to court because as a state media outfit, that would enable me to demand information from the state to present witness testimony and to present evidence that you're clearly trying to shut down. Okay, well, that's that's, that's a very good challenge, Vanessa. Yes. Well done on that one. Just, just finally, Vanessa, have we any idea when this programme is finally going to be produced or come out? Um, well, apparently I've got until Monday morning to send back a response to all of this. Um, Peter Ford, who's another target and former British ambassador to Syria, has sent back a very uh, typically scathing um, reply. As he said, he kept it short and sharp so that they would read out the entire statement. And I think, you know, I'll probably be doing the same. I'm certainly not going to be responding to any of the, well, they're not even questions, actually, to any of the statements. And I will be sending Chloe a list of similar statements regarding, um, as I said, the, the um, embedding of BBC producers with Arashan that she has designated a jihadi Salafi extremist organization. Yes. Okay. Uh, Vanessa, thank you very much, very much for joining us. Uh, we'll, we'll have to move on, but uh, we'll, keep keep, we'll keep you, we'll keep everybody informed as this develops. Keep going. Okay. Thanks. Uh, right. Now, let's uh, let's say if you like what the UK column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. And there are options to help us out there. That would be very much appreciated. Uh, and a reminder that, uh, well, AV 11.1 is rapidly approaching. Tickets available uh, on the UK column website, but also at alternativeview.co.uk. Um, it will begin on the Saturday evening, actually. Uh, so the graphic isn't quite correct. So it'll start... Uh, about tea time on Saturday with a couple of presentations and then a, a pretty long day on Sunday. Full day on Full Sunday. Day. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, going to be, it's going to be good fun, I'm sure. Uh, against the backdrops of, of uh, a backdrop of events we see at the moment, Mike, I think it's going to be a very, very interesting AV. Uh, right. Now, uh, let's have a look at this. Uh, Brian, the other day, was talking about uh, the fact that MPs are not uh, thinking, they're not responding to their own letters, uh, they're asking for advice from government ministers and apparently the government ministers aren't responding uh, to the individual queries either because they're just overloaded, Brian, yeah. so they've got to go and get some help. Uh, so here's another example, so thank you very much uh, to the person who sent me through this through. Uh, this is uh, a query that was sent to uh, Derek Trigg MP and he has then passed it on to Joe Churchill 
uh, who's government minister, Joe Churchill has responded by saying, well, actually, I don't have time. Sorry, I'm not responding to it. Just don't have time. Uh, but I'm going to get somebody else to respond to it. And who was the person they got to respond to it? Well, it was Marie Turner, as you were talking about on Monday. Uh, and uh, well, let's just blow up a little bit of the uh, response here so that everybody can see it. Uh, because uh, the original query was about the uh, declassification of COVID of coronavirus as being, or COVID-19 as being a high cons consequence infectious disease. Now, of course, we talked about this on this program way back in uh, March or April when that declassification happened in the first place. Uh, but uh, according to uh, Marie, uh, the latest information on the removal of COVID-19 from the list of high consequence infectious diseases in the UK can be found on the COVID-19 hub at gov.uk slash coronavirus. Uh, the situation is evolving, she says, and this hub is regularly updated. It offers all of our latest advice and guidance, including a link to the NHS website, a portal for those offering assistance, a tracking service displaying the last, the, sorry, the latest information on cases in the UK, and an email alert service so people can stay up to date with all the latest measures. Further information on HCIDs, including definitions, classifications, and listed diseases can also be found on gov.uk by searching for HCID. So that's really helpful. So let's just briefly have a look at this uh, COVID-19 hub. And I can assure everybody that, well, actually, if anybody wants to go and have a look for themselves and see if they can find anything about HCIDs in here, then please do let me know. But I had a good look through this stuff this morning and there's absolutely nothing discussing HCIDs at all. So uh, Marie, at the very least, being disingenuous there by sending to somebody to a website that is just full of propaganda, and it's the most egregious propaganda as well, but there's so much of it that it would uh, take a, a year just to work your way through it all. Uh, and I don't believe that the, that the term uh, high consequence infectious disease or HCID yeah. uh, is on there at all. So, Mike, we know that we've got this huge, vast cabinet office organisation. It's running a team of letter of people to answer letters. MPs can't think. They're apparently now too stupid. So a lady answers with we and our policy. And we've no idea who this woman is. Well, we do know a bit about her now. She's got no qualifications to be speaking in detail about health. Mm. Um, but she is now the government. So we're now getting to the core of it. Westminster is dead and we're now being run by a dictatorship, which is essentially an expanded cabinet office. Don't believe me. Let's have a look at igloos. Um, thank you very much for the viewer that picked up on this one. Devon Live, where to find Exeter's igloo style outdoor dining pods. Now you look at this new normal came to my mind. Just a silly story. Um, about igloo style dining pods, if you can imagine such a thing. Um, what did they say? Well, they'll be placed out, outside popular restaurants and cafes in the city. And they did say where some of these were going to be. But uh, you look at this and you think this is just a nonsense article, which it is in a way, but let's follow it through. So here's another report, East Devon News, outdoor dining domes for Exeter will support the COVID hit hospitality sector, says the council. Well, actually there was a bit more in the article because when you got into it, it said that Exeter City Council said the idea of the domes came from the Visitor Economy Recovery Group supporting the hospitality, cultural and heritage sector, which has been greatly hit by the coronavirus pandemic. So now we're getting a bit deeper to what we're looking at. Well, let's uh, bring in a figure, Lord Charles Courtenay, because he happens to be the Exeter Visitor Recovery Group chairman. And this is uh, what he had to say. We wanted to offer a new dining experience in the heart of the city that meets with government guidance, offers people confidence of remaining in their own social bubble, but at the same time is exciting and a little bit different. So here we have Lord Charles Courtenay. Now, this is a highly intelligent man. I mean, he's obviously a lord, but I believe he's a barrister as well. So I went to look and see what else he was doing. Well, I came to They Work For You, and I was very interested to see that, uh, first of all, there was a notice on They Work For You about COVID-19. Let's have a look at, see what it says. As a result of COVID-19, some MPs have been less less able to vote in Parliament. 
and this will re be reflected in their voting record so just highlight this bit here the 2nd to the 9th of June 2020 and what does it say it says the option of online voting was removed and a number of MPs may have been unable to vote because they were not physically able to attend so that is a complete destruction um, of the democratic process Mike somebody has done something where we've got the distinct possibility that MPs were unable to vote mm. unable to represent their constituents unable to get their opinion forward in the house this is the dictatorship but let's move on with the gentleman in question because I noticed on this page uh, that he had been speaking and it's on the restriction of public sector exit payments uh, regulations 2020 my lords this is not my area of expertise but since April I've been assisting Exeter City Council with its COVID response chairing a visitor economy recovery group which I've learned firsthand about the dedication and diligence of local government stop this is creating igloos Mike uh, but we're we're now into dedication and diligence this yeah. is encouraging isn't it etc um, so there we are building igloos but uh, when you get into what he's been talking about on on a more serious note uh, he's getting into some very heavy things so he's talking about pensions here the worry is the impact as discussed by the noble baroness lady Bakewell uh, of, of the pension strain payments for long-serving local government staff earning under 50,000 those who worked for many years in housing benefits environmental health or social work and those who might have turned down much better paid private work to continue their dedicated public service stand to lose out on pension benefits that they worked towards for decades if they're made redundant or seek early retirement after the age of 55 local government is staring into a very bleak winter with redundancies looking inevitable now we're into the meat of it this man knows what's coming but he's building igloos the regulations as drafted will hit the pensions of the longest serving and the most modestly paid uh, they will remove much needed staffing autonomy from local councils and given that there is no equality impact assessment they may well impact certain groups disproportionately um, but we do not know that so this man knows what's coming he knows that there's very serious stuff coming but what is he doing he's erecting plastic igloos on the streets now what's happened to this man has he lost his mind Alex help me out here this is a lord this is a man I think he's a barrister I'm pretty confident he's a barrister um, so he's an intellect but he knows that there is massive job losses and problems with pensions coming and his response is to say look at me I've built a plastic igloo is this some form of breakdown it might be um a loyally joke Brian I'm just picturing here I mean he is after all the Earl of Devon um Lord Courtney so why don't he found his own eatery he could call it the Devon Arms and uh, inside the igloos you could have baked Alaska with the Eskimo theme and uh, it perhaps might say on the menu uh, fresh baked Alaska by our own chef Lady Bakewell I think that would go down pretty well but no seriously um, intellectuals becoming barristers is usually a process of then narrowing their train of thought and language like equality impact assessment I know everyone in the political bubble thinks along these lines now but that's a classic indication of it coming out in language um, you don't think about the real world anymore when you become a lawyer you learn to strip it down to what kind of beast what species am I dealing with and there's really only a very uh, short dry checklist for a lawyer particularly a barrister that's a, you know, an advocate in other jurisdictions to go through it's um, have I ticked all the boxes the, the other considerations are just fluff I'm afraid um, so you would expect perhaps a little more noblesse from the Earl of Devon uh, than from others and of course it's well presented very suave but what he's saying there is the plebs are going to go broke but we can't let them know that yet that, that's the long and the short of it so it's not a loss of mind it's clever presentation clever presentation well we can say to all of our audience that are watching from Devon this is your man you've seen what we've had to say read for yourselves online what it, what he's actually been up to and also warning about and perhaps some of our viewers and listeners may choose to get in contact with him 
follow the theme through that our MPs have simply lost the plot. And let's have a look at this lady, Yvonne Favarg, if I pronounce that properly. She's a Labour Party MP. And um, one of her constituents asked her why she, why she failed to record a vote at the beginning of October regarding the Coronavirus Act, thereby failing her constituency of Makerfield. And this is her response. Thank you for contacting me about the renewal of the Coronavirus Act 2020. I've received a considerable volume of representations from constituents in support of the temporary renewal of the Act and also those who support its um, revocation. As you know, the first six-month review of the Act took place on the 30th of September 2020. The House of Commons approved the Renewal Act of the temporary provisions within the Act. I accept that in a pandemic, any government may need extraordinary powers available. And that is why, when faced with a highly unsatisfactory situation of an all-or-nothing motion placed before the House of Commons, I abstained alongside the majority of opposition uh, opposition MPs. Alex, if you're faced by something immensely serious where clearly you're not being offered the right choice, um, do you abstain or do you make your vote count and vote against what is clearly wrong? Perhaps I don't understand the system. Well, the system, uh, the way that the system has gone beyond uh, the Constitution is with whipped parties. Uh, Sir Keir Starmer, you know, a creature of the establishment, knighted Sir Keir orders his party representative, you were quite right in captioning that she represents her party to her constituency, not the other way around in practice, ordered these representatives to abstain. So they didn't have a conscience in the matter. They were whipped into it. Uh, this is the root of blackmail. Uh, it's not foreseen by our constitution. All the old experts said we need to vote for men and women on principle so that we can hold them to account. Uh, the, the real poison is in the middle there where uh, Mrs. Fauvarg simply rolls over like so many members of parliament, both government and opposition, and says, I accept that emergency powers are a valid principle. They are not in the common law. They've always led to disaster through history. It's so well known that it's even an, a script writing theme in Star Wars, that if you give emergency powers for someone to be Lord of the Universe, you'll never hand them back again. Uh, you know, there, there are extremely rare exceptions, such as Cincinnatus in the Roman Republic, so rare that he's got a city in Ohio and a an order named after him. But uh, any other Tom, Dick or Harry given emergency powers will, of course, keep the pandemic going with a, a bunch of people he pays on your tax, pay, tax money to say that there's still a pandemic so that the likes of Mrs. Fulvag will say, well, of course, since there is still a pandemic, let's not question that, ergo, we need to keep rolling over emergency powers. At that point, there is no purpose in having parliamentary representation at all. Thank you. Thank you for that, Alex. Let's follow her through because she's got a lot more to say and I think it's very important. So here's the next bit. This legislation contains some of the most draconian powers ever seen in peacetime Britain. So, Alex, this lady knows how dangerous the situation is, but she says, I worked closely with my colleagues in Parliament to scrutinise this legislation when it was introduced in March to ensure that any exercise of executive power or administrative action is measured against human rights and common law standards. Well, she can't have done that because if she had have done that, she would have known that they could not possibly agree to any of this legislation. Mm. So she's saying it includes necessity, proportionality, rationality, fairness and non-discrimination. What she describes as having done, she clearly can't done. She goes on, I support the renewal of temporary provisions with a heavy heart and in the public and in the interest of protecting the public health and saving lives. However, I understand the concerns that many constituents raised about lack of parliamentary scrutiny since the Act came into force. With strong, such strong powers available, the need for accountability is even more important than in ordinary times. I'm therefore pleased that the government has, has announced that where it is possible, Parliament will be consulted on any future significant measures that take effect across the whole of England and the UK. Well, this bit cracks me up because, of course, uh, where it's possible basically gives free rein for anything to happen because the government just has to say, well, we're sorry, guys, it wasn't possible this week. We just had to go ahead with it because it was an emergency going on. Yep. She talks about draconian legislation. She correctly says we need to measure it against common law and freedoms and basic rights. 
And then she accepts that the government says, well, we might give you an opportunity to talk about it, elected MP. These MPs have become like children. And of course, they've been fed childish stuff. Let's look at the last bit. I also understand the concerns that have been raised about Schedule 21 of the Act, which gives public health officers, constables and immigration officers the power to take action against potentially infectious persons. It is deeply concerning that this provision has so far been used for 141 prosecutions, all of which were found to be unlawful when reviewed. Additionally, I believe the term potentially infectious persons is unclear and could include anybody. So if we, if we conflate those two statements, anybody could have charges ranged against them and it wouldn't matter if there was any truth in those charges. She recognises this is the situation. Alex, what should our viewers do to respond to this lady? You need to learn the common law, which Mike and I and David Scott are going to be recording a series of podcasts about. And you need to listen to proper sources of information and read them firsthand about the common law to hold her to account. Uh, the killer there in the middle is that Mrs. Fobarg is killing the common law by rolling it in to something that it doesn't go with, just like chalk and cheese. She doesn't say the common law has been abolished. She says, I like to test things against human rights standards, which is Napoleonic, and common law. And then she defines what these two standards are. Now, Brian, if I said to you, I have a great kennels that looks after dogs and cats. I, I look after all the needs of dogs and cats. I have clockwork mice. I have scratching posts. I have litter trays. What would you say as, uh, as a pet owner if I said to you, that's what I have to look after dogs, dogs and cats? Well, I've, if I've heard all of those things reasonably, you've given me a list of things which cats like. Is that right? Correct. And that is my polite way of saying, I don't really care about dogs, but I don't want to let you down uh, rudely. I want to let you down gently or dupe you if I can. Right, so the common law principles, uh, Mike might want to put that slide back on, I forgot, three slides back. Uh, the definition of, uh, of the chalk plus the cheese that she gives is all cheese and no chalk, right? Look at the bottom of that slide. Common law and human rights standards with human rights name first, because that rules us since 1998. Necessity, proportionality, rationality, fairness and non-discrimination. I'm going to be a little bit off the cuff here, uh, or I should say a little bit summarising, because I know that lawyers will point to some of those principles having a basis in common law jurisprudence. But essentially, those are the human rights framework, the same one that the Lord, uh, that the Earl Devon is talking about, effectively. The common law principles, oaths, uh, acting within powers, um, justice in the sense of, of righteousness, uh, having a, a, a basis to do something and being sacked if you get it wrong and uh, ultimately respecting people's immunities, not touching them. Uh, these are foreign to civil law, which says if we find the need for it, we'll do it. And then we, use, we usually will tack on a line like uh, only insofar as is necessary in a democratic society. And when the judges get uh, talking to about that, they then say, well, sorry, but you're a Christian or you're a socialist. So um, your views fall, uh, are not worthy of respect in the democratic society. So we can lock you up for them. Uh, or uh, you can't go to church or see your grandmother because that's not necessary in a democratic society. It's a shifting goalpost. So the, the judicial coterie and the members of parliament and the earls who are along with it uh, will just keep this going. So to answer your question, first learn the common law, spend several months doing it, and then you'll know to hold people to account properly, saying, why are you removing my God-given rights as, a, as an Englishman or a Scotsman to certain things which the Crown has repeatedly promised to govern me by on pain of losing the coronation? And, you know, this is something that's uh, the latest article on ukcolumn.org homepage, top right, has a, a staunch writer for us, Martin Edwards, saying now he's suddenly decided or finally decided that the monarchy has to go. You know, that this is the kind of extreme we're at, at now because the monarchy is not looking after us in, in accordance with its oath. It's not a nice to have, it's required by us in the coronation that they obey our common law rights. Alex, thank you very much for that. I'll just add, in my opinion, if, if you, uh, people do go and spend two months studying the common law, encourage people to do that. It's a real eye opener. Uh, in the meantime, of course, you can do very simple things, write those letters and emails, polite, measured with evidence, challenging MPs like Yvonne Farag and holding feet to the fire. Um, we need to do something. Mm. Where does that leave us, I Mike? I think we should finish. Should we finish with a short uh, video clip? 
Oh, maybe. okay. If you, if you would like, I think so because uh, we, we've we've spoken about our MPs, um, but somebody kindly uh, sent me something which they'd seen on Twitter to do with Devon and Cornwall Police. Uh, let's have a look at it on screen. Uh, well, this is uh, Devon and Cornwall Police uh, Twitter account. Devon and Cornwall Police want to create an inclusive society for all. Let's celebrate diversity together. Is that the role of the police to create an inclusive society? I didn't recognise inclusive societies in amongst uh, Robert Peel's nine principles of policing. Um, no. Um, well, that's a really excellent question, Mike. Let's just look at the video and then we'll come, we'll come back on that particular point. Now, I'm going to talk through it because it's very... Oh, oh, no, well, you can't. We'll, oh. we'll watch the video and then you can explain it. Okay, so, right. so let's watch it. Reporting makes a difference. By reporting hate crime when it happens, you can help stop it happening to someone else. Don't let other people's actions dictate who you are. Well, there you are, Mike. So um, thoroughly childish cartoon. Put well, out. Even using cartoon side effects, and it's just incredible. It's a cartoon. It's designed for childish minds. It's been... It's uh, clearly the police have used uh, public money given for policing and to stop crime to put out this immensely childish video. For people that are just listening in, the cartoon is essentially about a tomato who wants to go into a club, gets into the club. Um, there's prejudice from the start. The tomato can't decide whether he's going to go into uh, fruit or vegetable men or women's toilets that's what I picked up from it so confused tomato um, and then it's uh, all a bit sad after that so this is Devon and Cornwall what's their role well if we put this end slide up on screen because this is my tight take on it Devon and Cornwall police use money allocated to fight crime to promote a socio-political uh, agenda so we don't have a separation of powers with the police anymore. Uh, we've got police that are now fully integrated into the political agenda. And uh, if you happen to be somebody who is very happy that you're a man or a woman and you're happy with that label, then you know that Devon and Cornwall police are now biased against you for being male or female because they've declared in a cartoon video that their priority is for people who are not sure whether they're a fruit or a vegetable. Mm. Alex, just some closing comments from you. Uh, clearly, we're seeing applied psychology being used to destroy our institutions. When we're governed by vegetables, it's probably time to get fruity, Brian. Uh, but make sure that you stay well within law and decency while getting fruity. And don't just write to people or, or go to meetings such as you can these days and say, I want me common law rights. Actually give chapter and verse. Keep it short. Uh, someone in the chat box has said poor Alex's bookcase looks a bit wonky. Uh, the whole house is subsiding. That happens a lot in Dutch town centres, don't worry. So uh, the, the bookcase won't topple over until the whole house does. Uh, but perhaps <laughs> that's a metaphor for what's happening to... Uh, the ship of state at the moment. Uh, all you can do is pick out the individual books, digest them and uh, make use of them. Yeah, we'll leave it there. And I'll just end by saying that uh, people are often saying to us now, thank you, UK column, you keep us sane. That is an immensely wonderful compliment. So thank you very much for that. But of course, it's not only keeping sane, it's also keeping happy. So as this madness unfolds around us, very important each and every one of us stays 
happy and does their best to make their family and friends happy and comfortable so a bit of um, good interact a bit of good human interaction is required and that of course requires physical contact we'll leave it there thanks for joining us bye bye, bye, -bye.